0: Do you know we have a? Uh, since we're talking about prophetic things in the book of Daniel, there's a little watch up here, and it says 10-5, 10:05." So I'm in good shape. Um, ordinarily, uh, when we would when we we're continuing through a series, and about seventy to eighty percent of the church is away at family camp. Ordinarily, we would do something different on this day when everyone is away, uh, when, when the, the rest are away, and um, uh, this is not uh, quite the ordinary year. Uh, the elders have asked uh, me to, and Lewis to um, bring to you a series uh, really of how we got here, Church 101, and starting next Sunday, and that's the... That's the beginning of our new series. Starting next Sunday, I'm going to be uh, talking with you and teaching you uh, from Ephesians 4, if you want to look at that ahead of time, about how this church began uh, almost 35 years ago. So we are going to be talking about that and uh, uh, looking at those scriptures. And therefore, we felt like we uh, we would just have to take this Sunday to because of the timing of the way the the future is uh, laid out for me and Lewis, Uh, today would be the day to complete the book of Daniel, even though the rest of the church is not here and will be listening, I'm sure, to this message online. I I know that'll happen. (laughs) Um, So if you're in the book of Daniel, or if you're not, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be concluding this book. There are different views on how to interpret several passages, Once you move out of Daniel's own story in chapter 6 and move into the prophetic section in chapter 7 through 12, um, there are a lot of different views of of different scriptures. And uh, I was teasing Lewis, uh, since he finished chapter 10 last week, that uh, I was going to begin today's sermon by quoting the the words of uh, chapter 11, verse 2 which say, and now I will tell you the truth. (laughs) Last week, Lewis studied Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10 is part of this 79-verse unit. Chapters 10 through 12, they're all one section. In chapter 10, Daniel began fasting and praying, and, and there were two reasons for that. The first reason was that the Jews had now been uh, permitted by King Cyrus to return to the land, but few Jews returned. They'd become comfortable in Babylon. Uh, Almost all of them had grown up in Babylon. And for Daniel, the idea that believers would place personal comfort over following God's word broke his heart. We totally understand it, but it broke his heart. And secondly, those Jews who did return were facing incredibly powerful enemies who would do anything that they could to hinder the rebuilding of God's temple. And that is exactly what we see in the parallel in Ezra chapter 4. Daniel's discouraged. The restoration was supposed to be going so great, at least in Daniel's mind. God's majestic kingdom would finally be established in Daniel's mind. So... God sits this aged Daniel, 85 or so years old, sits him down for a front row seat, lifts the veil for his faithful servant to see the unseen behind the scene. And just for a little bit of a perspective, when we're studying prophecy in the Bible in 2019, it's like you're having an intermission, maybe one of several intermissions, in a seven-act play. You've already watched Acts 1 through 6 unfold, and the screenplay, the Bible, is in your hands as you look back on how those six acts have unfolded. You've seen things that had been future then, but now are history. And all, uh, all that remains is Act 7. What is Act 7 going to look like? The unfolding of the future when will the intermission be over the screenplays in your hands we're not sure exactly what the details are going to look like and the thing is you want to interpret the characters in act seven the same way that you interpreted them in act one two three four five and six so that uh, the shape of these things unfolds the same way. Israel is Israel, the nations are the nations, uh, and so on. Throughout the unfolding drama of Act 1 through 6, the shape of the Messiah and his work became gradually clearer through the centuries. The details were less fuzzy. And then in Act 6, he came forth and was identified, Jesus of Nazareth. But to use Daniel's prophetic terminology, Messiah was cut off. At the close of Act 6, Jesus was resurrected, ascended to the Father, and we now await the inauguration of Act 7. We're in intermission. In Act 7, I believe it will take us through the time that the Bible calls tribulation through to the end times, which will actually be the end of the beginning. So the screenplay's in our hands, and the natural tendency is to want to locate yourself in the timeline of the screenplay exactly when is intermission over when will act 7 begin and some of you are looking around saying well, that rapture's already happened they're gone but not 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 quite let me back up a little bit to daniel chapter 9 and this is going to be a a, a teaching challenge uh, to us today in daniel chapter 9 dan god taught daniel three things first of all there was going to be this return after 70 years of captivity, and that is exactly what Jeremiah had prophesied. That's what Daniel was studying, and that is exactly what happened historically. The return, however, after the 70 years of captivity was not the beginning of God's promised future kingdom. That's what Daniel was thinking. It's going to, start, it's going to be inaugurated. But no, it wasn't. When exactly was God's kingdom going to begin? This is the same question That the disciples had after the lord's ascension or i'm sorry just before the lord was ascended to heaven lord is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to israel acts chapter 1 verse 6. so the return after the 70 years was not the establishment of god's future kingdom daniel was told that there would be a countdown towards god's promised kingdom beginning with the decree to rebuild the city which was the story of Nehemiah. At that time, the Messiah would come. But the countdown to the establishment of the promised kingdom by the Messiah was to be interrupted when Messiah was cut off. Daniel chapter 7. There's going to be one more week of years, seven years ahead for Israel. And during that seven year period, they, Israel, will suffer at the hands of anti Messiah. I believe that the suffering will become a time... Now this is Gary's view, okay? Speculation. But I believe that that time of suffering will be a time of purification for the nation of Israel, possibly when Daniel is told that the people in chapter 12, verse 10, will be purged, purified, and refined. And again, I believe it will be then that the Messiah will return and set up his kingdom. Now, remember that all of this is very Jewish in God's prophetic screenplay. Before 1948, Jews who interpreted this literally must have wondered how it could ever be fulfilled. For that matter, Christians reading Romans 10 and 11 might wonder how Paul's statement of future salvation for Israel, that the, uh, for all, the, all of these people who are, who are going to become Christians, made any sense at all because after 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem there was no national Israel. But here we are in Ro- in uh, Daniel chapters 11 and 12. Last week Lewis studied chapter 10 which focused on the spiritual dimensions of warfare. Let me mention let me say this, a biblical view of reality, commits, uh, a biblical worldview commits you to a view of reality that is larger than your ability to explain everything that it contains by definition you can understand and explain God exhaustively then you would be God a biblical view a worldview commits you to a view of reality that extends beyond what you can see and is larger than your ability to explain and experience everything that it contains even science argues that there's far more to reality than what you see there's one interesting occasion where in fact on several occasions God sort of lifts the curtain to show us the greater picture of what is real behind what is seen um, that's what jesus did at the mount of transfiguration when the veil was moved aside just a little bit and not entirely for the disciples to get a glimpse of the glory of who jesus is and be strengthened by that in second kings six elisha was uh, s- surrounded by the uh, army of the arameans and his servant was absolutely terrified listen to listen to what, ha- what uh, this verse says second 2- Kings uh, chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And Elisha's servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of the the, uh, host of the Lord surrounding them. So God's army was there, the spiritual behind the physical, the eternal behind the temporal. And that was reality, which is bigger than what that servant could see, than what we can see. And Elisha's servant was strengthened. In Daniel chapter 10, God lifts the veil on spiritual warfare, and Daniel is strengthened. God's fighting for his people. The end is not in doubt. That's it. It's done. In chapter 10, spiritual warfare. Today, chapter 11 focuses on earthly warfare. Then chapter 12 closes out the book. So we're going to roll up our sleeves and uh, jump in on this. And, And as we enter chapter 11, I want to make three brief observations. First of all, this entire section is called the message of truth, it's referred to that way in ten one and in 11.2. This is prophecy, this is history written in advance of Daniel. Secondly, I want you to notice that God has specifically said that there are truths in these chapters that are sealed up for the end times. They will make sense to those who are looking back on them at the end of times. And there are some things I'm going to speculate about But that's all it will be speculation. Third, in chapter 11, the things that we'd seen earlier in Daniel, the symbolism, is all now gone. We're no longer dealing with statues, with lions with wings, with images and visions of rams and goats and horns. Now, We have straightforward references, literal references to kings coming to conference tables, making promises to each other, lying to each other, giving their daughters in marriage to form alliances, trying to bribe people in the enemy camp to spy for them, wars of aggression from the south, from the north. All of those are fought with great intensity. There's just nothing new here. This is exactly what we see today. The names of the kings of the north and the south may change. And we're not always sure exactly which king is which. In your bulletin, I've, I've put a sort of a timeline of the various kings of the north and the south as a part of this chapter study. We're not always sure which is the same country. But the methods and the political intrigue and the outcomes are straight from today's headlines. So we're going to start, uh, we're going to be skipping around a bit today. We're going to start with chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arrive. This is, this is, I'm sorry, this is Michael the archangel speaking to Daniel. I should have, I should have mentioned that. Uh, He said, I arose to be a protection and encouragement to Darius the Mede, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. That is exactly what happened. And then the fourth, that would be Xerxes I, in the book of Esther called Ahasuerus, a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Of Greece so the focus of these first two verses on the fourth Persian king Xerxes who would anger Greece here's what's behind here's the history behind it his father Darius the first had been humiliated at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC Xerxes never forgave that he never forgot that and he tried to avenge that humiliation by raiding Greece time after time after time and finally attacking Greece no more raids full-on attack the Greek historian Herodotus actually writes about this. He describes a planning session in his piece, The Persian Wars. And this is what, he, what Herodotus said, quote, Xerxes, being, able, being about to take in hand the expedition against Athens, called together an assembly of the noblest Persians to learn their opinions and to lay before them his own designs. So when the men were met, the king spoke thus to them, My intent is to throw a bridge over the Hellespont and march an army through Europe against Greece, and thereby I may obtain vengeance from the Athenians for the wrongs committed by them against the Persians and against my father. Now, that's a later report from Herodotus, but actually the same meeting is described in the book of Esther chapter 1. Unfortunately for Xerxes, his army and his navy were both totally defeated 150 years later alexander would take his revenge and issue a call to arms to raise an army of greeks that would respond and enlarge the army of his father philip and the first order of business for alexander's army was to punish persia look at verse three and a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides him. This is the very same story that Daniel learned years earlier in chapter 7, using the image of the leopard with the foreheads, if you remember any of that, and and still later in chapter 8. Daniel learned that that this this particular ruler would be cut off himself would be broken off which Alexander died very early and there would be four replacements not his own sons that's because his two sons were assassinated after Alexander died the empire fell into four subdivisions so there it is that is exactly uh, what happened now in chap- verses 5 through 20. Uh, just going to mention a few things here. You've got this, this future uh, history of the kings of the north and the kings of the south and, and the details are, are, are pretty remarkable uh, as, as you look at how they unfold. There are many details of political intrigue. There are several historical soap operas uh, in these verses. It's complex in one sense but it's simple in another. The main conflict is between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. From what vantage point, from what perspective are they north and south? From Israel. North of Israel and south of Israel. Twice in here it's mentioned that that it's from the perspective of the beautiful land. And that is a a reference to Israel and to the city of Jerusalem. If you look at, uh, just look at some of these uh, verses... Verse 5, the king of the south. Verse 6, the king of the north. Verse 7, the king of the north. Verse 8, king of the north. Verse 9, king of the south. Verse 11, king of the south, king of the north. Verse 13, king of the north. Verse 14, king of the south. Verse 15, king of the north, king of the south. Verse 16, again, the beautiful land. You sort of get a picture that there's a lot of history going on here and a lot of kings A lot of those years uh, take place during this time period. Uh, Look with me, and if you look at uh, verse verse 6 in Daniel 11, after some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. That's a peaceful alliance through marriage but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. She will be given up, along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. Now, if you read in verses 6 through 9, this is a soap opera we could call Bernice in the City. The, the name of the king of the south was Ptolemy Philadelphus. He married his daughter, Bernice, to Antiochus II, who was already married at that time, didn't seem to matter. And they had one child together, Antiochus and Bernice. Shortly after Bernice's father died, the, uh, Antiochus divorced her, got rid of her and the child, returned to his earlier wife, Laodicea, bad choice laodice poisoned him and after he had died told her son to kill bernice and her baby baby so that they could have a clear claim to the throne and that is exactly what happened historically look at verse seven but one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north He will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the kings of the north for some years. This feud continued for decades. Bernice's brother was the one who arose, verse 7 says, in his place. uh, Of the same line as Bernice. He overcame the northern Syrians He's the one who executed Laodicea. He pillaged Syria, and uh, the reference in verse 8 to carrying all the precious worship vessels back to Egypt, that is exactly what he did. Look at verse 9. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of south, but return to his own land. After a long time, verse 8 says, for some years, Seleucus Callinicus marched against Ptolemy and was defeated. And in verse 10... His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may gain, uh, he may again wage war to his very fortress. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Ptolemy's sons, Seleucus, Seranus, and Antiochus III, who is called Antiochus the Great, the father of Antiochus Epiphanes, led an army and Antiochus, took the troops up to Ptolemy's fortress. Look at verse 11. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, and that multitude will be given into the hands of the former. Ptolemy became enraged, fought a furious battle, and totally defeated Antiochus. Now, I'm going to stop here with that section. Uh, you're getting the picture. There's, there, are thing, there are historical things uh, going on here. And uh, um, I just want to point out that if you want to, you can read chapter 11 uh, with, with the Bible in one hand and, and a history book in the other. It's veiled history, but it's real history. If you were looking forward, as Daniel was, it would be kind of like a painting from the Impressionist school of art. The outlines are there, but you can tell clearly what's going on. But the focus is still a little bit fuzzy. If you're looking backward, as we are, not as Daniel was, as you're looking backward, the history of it, pretty clear. This is is what happened. So all of these kings are north of Israel and south of Israel, and Israel is caught in the middle, and northern forces go south, southern forces go north, all passing through the beautiful land, all making their mark. If one king is successful, he may decide to grab a little bit more of Israel's territory. If another king is defeated, he may have a royal tantrum and retaliate on Israel on his way back home. By the way, speaking of royal tantrums, in verses 21 through 35, we see the same individual who was revealed to us in chapter 8. The human prefigurement of anti-Messiah or as one person called him, the Antichrist of the Old Testament, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was so despicable that his nearest kinsman in the Bible is described as being Antichrist. Now, verses 21 through 28 describe the first successful um, campaign that Antiochus Epiphanes had towards Egypt. We studied this a few weeks ago, the pillaging of Jerusalem and everything that took place with that. But look at verses 29 and 30. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this time it will not turn out the way it did before, for the ships of Kittim, Cyprus, will come against him. Ptolemy had made an alliance with the Romans. The ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. He will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. What ha- as, as we studied in chapter 8, Antiochus was defeated by an alliance with the Romans and was actually humiliated. He was forced publicly to um, back down. Have you heard the expression... A line in the sand? Sure you have. Um, In a meeting with the Romans, uh, a truce before the battle was to begin, the Roman consul, Gaius Popilius took out his sword and walked around Antiochus and drew a circle around him. And then he came back around in front of Antiochus And he said, uh, You are not to leave that circle until you decide whether or not you're going to come up against us. That's the line in the sand. Antiochus backed down, he was totally humiliated. What happens in the heart of a bully who is publicly forced to back down? He vents his rage on weaker victims. Around him verses 31 and 32 forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant but the people who know their God will display strength and take action that, that I believe refers to the Maccabeans and the Maccabean revolt that we see later unfold in history. On his way back north through Palestine, as we said a few weeks ago, Antiochus' forces massacred thousands of Jews who were assembled to worship. Eventually, he erected a statue of Zeus in the temple and defiled the altar of the Jews by offering a pig on that altar. He decreed that circumcision was now forbidden meat that was unclean was now the menu and the sabbath was no longer to be observed the maccabean revolt was the result of all that okay so these things are being told to daniel okay let's reboot with me again okay these all these things are being told to daniel he's looking at it years ago i I taught a a course in a a modular course in a, a seminary in los angeles and Betsy and I stayed an extra week, and we went to the Getty Museum uh, one, one day. And uh, there was this Impressionist wing, okay? And if you go in there and you, you see, the out, as I mentioned earlier, the outlines are fuzzy. The, you can see what it is, but the outlines are fuzzy. And then you go into the classical or traditional, whatever you call it, side, and, and these eyes were about six inches away from a Rembrandt. I was surprised they were they were allowing that, and I was looking at the, at the, and some of the detail in that thing was so astonishing i it looked to me at one point on one character that he had to have used a hair to paint some of that just a hair it was amazing, so you look at some of these these things that are unfolding for us in Scripture the story is the same the outlines the same it's it's sort of an impressionist view but over time the details morph into greater and greater clarity of what actually happened to where we look back on it and say ah yes that's exactly how it unfolded Daniel is anticipating the establishment of God's future kingdom and it hadn't happened didn't happen when they returned to the land doesn't seem like it's gonna happen at any time soon messiah is going to come and it didn't happen when he was here he was cut off we're in intermission acts seven is yet ahead so how is this going to work its way out historically I believe and by the way when the, with the Maccabeans that didn't establish God's future promised kingdom so what now I believe that the last words of verse 35, if you look at verse 35, suggest a leap forward in time. Because starting with verse 35, there is a reference to the end time, to the appointed time. That is mentioned in verse 40. It's mentioned in chapter 12, verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 13. Anticipating this future time that is going to unfold when intermission is over. And um, it, it, it's, it's kind of like, let me put it this way, uh, looking at biblical prophecy sometimes is like seeing a mountain range. You're on the top of one mountain, and you see the top of another mountain, and you see the top of the next, and the next, and the next. You're not sure what, you don't know about, the, sometimes you don't even see valleys at all you're not sure that valleys are there you're not sure how big they are and that's kind of the way it is sometimes uh and and as time gets closer okay the valley is now explained and unfolded so daniel's wondering you know when is this going to happen when is when is the the time of the end uh, i believe that what we're looking at with verse 35 and following we're looking at the same thing we saw in chapter 8 behind Messiah. The same kind of individual that Antiochus was is anti-Christ that we see unfolded at the beginning of the end as Scripture continues to come true. Antiochus pointed forward to a future individual, that beast of beasts got, that was going to oppose God's anointed at the end of time in the book of Revelation. See the same pattern again here? And, and just as anti-Messiah will be at the end of time and he will magnify himself, he will magnify himself. We saw the same thing in chapter 8. He will magnify himself. Look at chapter um, 11, verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself. Verse 37, he will magnify... Verses 36, I'm sorry. He, verse 37, he will magnify himself. So all of that is, I think, anticipating this being who is yet to come. And, and it's tied, the last of chapter 11, is tied to chapter 12 with the phrase, now at that time, what is at that time? Well, he's about to tell you that's the time of the resurrection. Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Michael with Israel, we've already seen that before as well, will arise and there'll be a great time of distress such as never has occurred since there was a nation until that time and at that time your people everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will be raised or will be awake to everlasting life others to disgrace and everlasting contempt so there is this future corporate resurrection that we see at the end of time. Let me mention to you, uh, if you were to read ahead, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And this is what he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Who's the archangel? Who? Michael. Yeah. Same guy. Michael. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together w- with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, who's the archangel? Michael. Who's the angel in Daniel ten through twelve? Michael. Now look at chapter twelve, verse uh, chapter twelve, very briefly. Uh, look at uh, in 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 verse. Uh, we, we already read uh, verse one, uh, verses one and two. Look at verse three. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heavens. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those are the people who share the truth about the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, and salvation through him and him alone. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. doesn't say wisdom will increase. We have seen knowledge increase. We have seen uh, globalization and transportation. Uh, Perhaps that's what that's referring to. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing. And then we saw this exchange back and forth as Bill read this scripture. How long? How long? Verse 6, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And then the answer is time, times, and half a time. That same reference is, was repeated from chapter uh, 7. Verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times in the law, and they will be given into his hand at, for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit in judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Listen, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey him. That's the kingdom. That's what Daniel's looking for. So there'll be a time, time, half a time, and when this is done, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. What does that mean? Shattering the power of the holy people. I wonder if it has to do with the very, with the unfolding of that 70th week, That tribulation week. If you read Revelation 4 through 19, what you see is attack after attack after attack of Israel from their surrounding enemies. And during that time, in the book of Revelation, Israel is purged. So that at the end of that, these are people who are waiting for the Messiah to return. Okay. Um, verse 8, As for me, I heard but could not understand. We, we sort of identified. <laughs> so I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome? And this refers, this Hebrew word refers to the close. The, the thing that's the result of the three and a half years. The time, times, and half the time we studied before. In verse 9, he says, Go your way, Daniel. What he means is, You just go on and do what you're supposed to be doing. (laughs) If I can paraphrase, my son, relax. You don't have to know about the establishment of the kingdom. You go your way, Daniel. For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, refined. The wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. The end times generation is going to be Comforted by Daniel's book. And he's got this strange reference here. From the time that the regular sacrifices is abolished, the abomination of desolation is set up, and that's a reference to that in the book of Revelation, there will be 1,290 days. That's the three and a half years of tribulation, the great tribulation in terms of lunar days. It's 30 days more than that. Why 30 days more? Answer, I don't know. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. That's 45 more days. Is that to judge and set up the kingdom? Answer, I don't know. Why? It's concealed. That's what he says. But it's for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into Shabbat, Sabbath, rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age you know enough my son to be at peace trust me the kingdom will happen it will unfold I am in charge in the 79 verse block the veil is pulled back we see a little bit behind the scene still the impressionism with a lot of things Details of kings and kingdoms are listed, but it's clear, it's clear that the kingdoms of this world are all unstable. Did you think we were living in a stable country? I used to think so when I was a little boy, but it's not. Eventually, anti-Messiah will arise. God will deal with him, and then Messiah will return. All people will face a final resurrection... And accountability before God. And God would say, In Daniel, God's kingdom will be established, but on my timetable. Now I want to conclude with three thoughts. The first one has to do with God's word. God's plan for Israel actually I think is a case study in the truth of the Bible. We're we're used to Israel as a headline in, in the news. We we we've seen that over our lifetime. But it's it's in the in the ancient world, Israel was mostly ignored by the historians, except for a period of greatness under Solomon's reign. The world powers were, were Persia, Greece and Rome, and, and they were the elephants and Israel was a gnat, a a fly. Daniel and all the prophets throughout the Old Testament history knew. I mean, they knew that Israel was an insignificant country in comparison to the world empires. So they would have to take by faith that Israel would place a central role in world politics at the end of time. I wonder if they ever looked at each other and said, should we be taking this literally? And then, then, to make things worse, The temple was destroyed, the city was sacked, 70 A.D., and Israel no longer existed as a nation. The Jews were scattered, and century followed century, followed century, almost two millennia, and skeptics would have said, hey, there is no Israel, the Bible's untrue, can't interpret anything like this literally. New Testament believers would be tempted to say, well, you know, Israel is called the people of God. The church is called the people of God, and then they commit the logical fallacy of the undistributed middle and say, maybe Israel is the church. But you remember our seven act play through history? We are in intermission. And I would want to interpret Israel in Act 7 the same way that I interpret it in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, Act 5, and Act 6. Israel's always been on God's radar screen, it still is. Most churches ignore the statement that the gospel in Romans 1.16 is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Israel still hated. And you do see that hatred in many chapters, uh, especially in the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament. But Jesus is a Jew. Our heroes, Joseph, Mary, John the Baptist, the disciples, Jews, and when Paul went to cities, he was engaged in Jewish evangelism in the synagogues and then Gentile evangelism in the Agra in the markets. It's, it's, it shouldn't surprise you, though, that today uh, ABC commentator Cokie Roberts described the United Nations as, quote, an anti-Israeli organization. And consider the hatred that we see in Revelation 4 through 19, which is the tribulation, which I, Gary, believe is the 70th week of Daniel, which I believe is the time of their cleansing, their purification, their purging, so that, as Romans, chapter uh, 10, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 26 says, "And so all Israel shall be saved." That may be what that is referring to. And then he concludes by saying, Oh, the depth of riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Throughout the book of Daniel, we've read account after account of things that Daniel looked at and said, Huh? <laughs> but which after the fact we look at and say, Oh, okay, yeah, so that's how it unfolded. But there are some things that are ahead for us, and we look at it and say, huh? But prophecy is like a maze. When you look at it straight on horizontally, you can understand some things, but it's complicated and it's fuzzy and you walk through the maze. But if you're granted the, not the horizontal but the vertical perspective and view it from above, okay, that makes sense. That's now clear. God's word reveals God's plan. It's true. The survival of Israel as a people, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation in 1948, I think is an observable miracle that God's word is true and that his plan will be fulfilled. So do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Second point I want to make in conclusion. God's desire for us. What does God desire from us? That we pray. Daniel's life was a life of constant prayer. In in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 10, pray, pray, pray. Now, don't misunderstand. There's no power in prayer that issues from us. Uh, We don't push God's button so that he responds to a right formula. There's no transactional view where if we do X, God is obligated to do Y. The power doesn't belong to the prayer the power doesn't belong to the prayer, but the power belongs to our sovereign God with whom we commune in prayer. It's prayer's entire dependence upon God from whom all blessings flow. Our spiritual treasure is in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God from whom all blessings flow and not from ourselves. But, so God calls us the earthen vessels, and he calls earthen vessels to pray. Our prayers are factored into the unfolding of God's plan. Isaiah said, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord, not against you, against the Lord, by ceasing to pray for you. And by the way, what are we to pray among other things? Thy kingdom come. Last point. And this has to do with God's salvation. Throughout these chapters, there is a shadow figure in this book, a presence that's also behind the scene, a person in whom I believe we're to place our hope. Listen to these indicators. In Daniel chapter 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, If we studied that, we learned that there's this mysterious stone. The text says, fashioned without hands. It's an individual, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally reading into this, but uh, someone born without normal human processes. This stone puts an end to all earthly kingdoms, and he is the one who establishes God's eternal kingdom. That's what Daniel's looking forward to. In chapter uh, 3, we see in the fiery furnace with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, one who is described as like unto a son of God. This mysterious figure who's never explained. In chapter 7, This individual goes up to the Ancient of Days, God on his throne. He is is called the Son of Man, and he receives what? The kingdom from the Father, from the Father's hands, the Ancient of Days. This is the passage that Jesus quotes as applying to himself. This passage from Daniel 7, and that's why the high priest said, We have heard his blasphemy. We have no need for any other testimony. Crucify him. Also in Daniel 7, we learn that arising from the Gentile kingdoms of chapter 2, there is this being who is anti-Messiah. In chapter 8, this being will ravage Israel, but he is opposed and destroyed by the true Messiah, who, quote, looked like a man, but commands the angels. He is also called there the prince of princes. In chapter 9, we discovered that the Messiah will come after the 483 year countdown that begins from the time of the decree to build Jerusalem and Jesus came then. We also learned that Messiah will be cut off. And we also learned that there is a final, future, seven year period of tribulation for Israel. I've told you what, that I, I, what I think about the timing of that. In chapters 10 through 12, the shadows are gone, the veil's lifted. The same being whom John will see in Revelation 1 that Lewis talked about last week in chapter 10 is standing in all of his glory before Daniel. Antichrist will rise, God will deal with him, and the Messiah will return. There will be a final resurrection, eternal accountability for all people, and the King of kings and Lord of lords will rule and reign. One year at family camp, since all these folks are gone, when, years ago at family camp, Joe Lockhart set up several checkerboards with, uh, I, I think there were pro- probably 10 or 12 checkerboards down a long table. And people sat on the other side of them, and Joe played them all. He, you know, he, he, he beat everybody. He play, played, uh, played us all at once. On a cosmic scale, Think of it this way, Daniel 10 through 12 is is sort of a global checkerboard with all of these little pieces furiously demanding, king me! No, king me! No, king me! Everyone trying to dominate the checkerboard and, and thinking that his own little kingdom is all that there is. God is in control, he's playing them all at once, letting them play out their little games, their little intrigues, until one day... Everyone will look up and see a reality that they did not know existed before them. Who stands the king, uh, there stands the king of kings who says, game over. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, he who sat on it is called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a written name written on them, on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The Alpha, the Omega. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So there will be future judgment. There will be final accounting. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, I thank you.